Good morning. Uh, my name is Doris Meissner. Uh, I'm a senior fellow here at the Migration Policy Institute, where I direct our U.S. policy programs. And I'm very pleased to have you with us this morning and very pleased for the topic that we're going to be discussing. Today, uh, we will be releasing or have released a report that is called, once again, Prospects for a U.S. Legalization Program and the Unauthorized Immigrant Groups that Could Factor in the Debate. The co-authors are Jessica Bolter, uh, Muzaffar Shishti, and myself, all of MPI. And um, uh, before we begin the discussion of it, we're going to go through a couple of housekeeping notes. First of all, if you have any technical problems, please email events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-256-1929. After we have the presentation and comments, we will have a Q&A uh, in the second part of the call. It will not be a voice Q&A. So please type any questions into the Q&A or the chat box or email them to events at migrationpolicy.org. Or you can tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Finally, the report is available on our website. So let me now introduce our presenters and commenters for this morning. Uh, the report itself is going to be presented by, summarized, <laughs> by uh, Jessica Bolter, who is an associate policy analyst here in the U.S. Immigration Program at MPI. And then we're going to have comments from two very experienced and um, uh, 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 involved people, one on the Democratic side, one on the Republican side. Um, the first comment is going to be from Carrie Talbot who is formerly the chief counsel for United States Senator Robert Menendez of New Jersey. She's currently the deputy director of the Immigration Hub. When she was on the Hill uh, with Senator Menendez, uh, which was a five-year period, it was during the debate on the 2013 immigration bill, which is the most recent legislative debate that there has been on a major immigration bill. That was the bill that was known as the Gang of Eight bill, and uh, I think it's fair to say that Gary drafted a good deal of it. She now works with NGOs and with Congress on immigration in a continuing role on these issues. The other comment will be from Stuart Verdery, who is the former general counsel to the Assistant Senate Majority Leader Don Nichols, and also served in government as the Assistant Secretary for Policy and Planning at the Border Transportation Security Directorate in the early years of the Department of Homeland Security. He then and has since become the founder and the CEO of Monument Advocacy and remains very active on immigration issues as well as issues of visas, uh, travel facilitation, transportation security and law enforcement, also very close ties on the Hill. So, uh, those, that, that's the program, and before we get into those uh, comments, the report and the comments, etc., let me just make a few remarks that set the table. And, uh, and, and those would be to say that we're now two weeks into a new administration since the Biden inauguration, and immigration has played an extremely visible, prominent role in this new administration coming into office and taking the reins. We have seen two rounds of executive orders. I think they uh, number 11 in all. Eight of them were on the first day within hours of the swearing in. The others happened uh, uh, two days ago on Tuesday, uh, the final three. Uh, and, but also as part of the day one efforts in the afternoon after the inauguration, was a very uh, sweeping proposal that President Biden put out asking the Congress for legislation. And it's a legislative proposal that covers many aspects of immigration, but its centerpiece is a sweeping legalization program. It's a legalization program that proposes a pathway to citizenship, eligibility for a pathway to citizenship for people in the country uh, as recently as January 1, 2021, 
and it offers a path to citizenship as well as an accelerated path to citizenship for several groups, including the Dream Population, TPS, and farm workers. So it's by far the most encompassing proposal that we've ever seen, even with a long history of efforts to try to enact immigration reform of one form or another. So that's the legalization part of the Biden agenda that we're going to be talking about today. And it's the legalization issue uh, that this report that we're releasing today uh, speaks to. Now we know of course that legalization has always been controversial and I think it's fair to say that it's likely been the reason uh, if one would name one particular reason that immigration reform has not happened for at least 20 years. We've had major failures in 2006, 2007 and 2000, as recently as uh, the most recent one being 2013. So, this is why we've named this report once again. We're at it once again, coming back to the issue of legalization. And, um, uh, and what this report does and what we're going to talk about this morning and then hear from uh, Carrie and Stuart uh, about what the Hill might actually do. But what we've done in this work is to break down the monolith of 11 million because that 11 million population is actually not a monolith. It is made up of a whole range of subgroups. And those subgroups have varying characteristics and varying equities uh, that are part of the legalization debate. In addition to that, what we do is we trace the history of legalization measures from the very broad along the lines of what President Biden is proposing to more discrete approaches and targeted programs that have happened over the course of our history, uh, as well as executive action, which for several administrations has been a fallback when legislation has not been able to succeed. So the aim of this report really is to provide a handbook. It's a handbook of sorts uh, that should, we hope, deepen the information and understanding of legalization the legalization populations and the measures that are available to Congress as this debate sets in anew. So with that, let me turn to my co-author Jessica Bolter and she's gonna tell you about what it is that we are providing in this work that we've released today. Great, thank you, Doris. And thank you to everyone for being here with us this morning. I'm going to talk a bit about what the unauthorized immigrant population looks like now uh, and focus in on some of the subgroups within this population that could be considered for targeted legalization. I'll also talk about some of the other legislative and administrative options to legalize unauthorized immigrants. So I should say up top that when we refer to legalization, we're defining that as the process by which qualifying non-citizens lacking lawful immigration status including those in quasi-legal statuses, such as Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or DACA, the process by which they can access some form of legal status that gives them protection from removal and the ability to work lawfully. So first of all, who is the population that we're talking about, the unauthorized population? As Doris mentioned, there are 11 million unauthorized immigrants in the United States. And that's the population that's declined since its peak in 2007. Still 60% of these 11 million people have lived in the US for a decade or longer. A majority speak English well, very well, or only speak English. 66% are employed, 29% are homeowners, and important shares have US citizen family members. 35% live with at least one U.S. citizen child, and 22% are married to a U.S. citizen or lawful permanent resident. Large segments of the unauthorized immigrant population are thus clearly deeply embedded in communities and labor markets in the U.S. So that being said, what are the options to legalize this population? One option, and the one that President Biden is putting forward, as Doris mentioned, is to legislatively create a broad program for essentially this entire population. 
Um, this has been done once before in the U.S.'s history under the 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, or IRCA, uh, but even that was for not as broad a population as Biden's proposal sets forth. So Biden's proposal would allow unauthorized immigrants in the U.S. as of January 1st, 2021, to apply for a temporary legal status, and then after five years, green cards, if they pass background checks and pay taxes. Those who are approved for permanent residence would then be able to apply for citizenship after three years. Uh, and as Dora said, again, if passed into law, this would be the broadest, most ambitious legalization program in U.S. history. But other legislative programs could focus on designated subgroups within the unauthorized immigrant population that have particularly strong arguments for legalization. So these are groups such as DACA holders or dreamers, TPS holders, farm workers, certain spouses or parents of US citizens and permanent residents. Indeed, Biden's proposal would address most of these subgroups and provide expedited pathways to legal residence and citizenship for some of them. But in the likely event that Biden's proposal ends up getting broken into more piecemeal legalization proposals, these are some of the groups that might be the subjects of these more targeted legalizations, given the equities they possess. So I'd like to hand, highlight a handful of these subgroups. Um, first, the most widely discussed potential legalization program in recent years uh, and even in recent days is likely one for DACA recipients and the broader dreamer population. So these of course are unauthorized immigrants who entered the country as minors. Um, while there were 641,000 active DACA holders as of September, 2020, MPI estimates that up to 1.7 million unauthorized immigrants could be eligible for DACA and that's including those 641,000. A legalization bill for this population could also expand the eligible population by tweaking some of the existing criteria for DACA, such as requiring that those eligible uh, be 31 as of June 20, 2012, or that they entered the US by June 2007, uh, or that they were under age 16 when they entered. Um, all these are criteria that could be adjusted to expand this population. So for example, if the requirement that they be under age 31 as of June 15, 2012 were removed, an additional 208,000 individuals could become eligible. And if the cutoff date for entering the country was moved up to 2016 from 2007, an additional 399,000 individuals could become eligible. So of all these adjustments to the existing criteria, we've found that moving the entry date up is the change that makes the most additional people eligible. Depending on how we combine the original DACA criteria and new expanded criteria in a hypothetical legalization program for DREAMers, uh, we've found that between 1.9 and 2.9 million DREAMers could be eligible for such a legalization program with these various revised criteria. And then immigrants with temporary protected status or TPS are others who have been commonly mentioned as candidates for a more focused legalization program. Nationals of certain countries may be designated as eligible for TPS if conditions in their home country makes it unsafe for them to return. As of September, 2020, an estimated 320,000 people from 10 countries had TPS. All had been in the US for at least three years, though 80% or 256,000 had TPS for at least 10 years. However, there also may be an obstacle to legalizing TPS holders, which is that a provision of the statute creating TPS prohibits allowing TPS holders to adjust to permanent residency unless three-fifths of the Senate votes in favor of doing so. And those are votes that might be hard to obtain. Another subset of the unauthorized immigrant population with particularly strong equities has emerged in the last year with the onset of COVID uh, and that's essential workers. So of the 6.8 million employed unauthorized immigrants, MPI estimates that between 1.1 million and 5.6 million were working in essential industries as of 2018, depending on the criteria used to select the occupations deemed essential. And out of these, 
between 72,000 and 361,000 DACA holders work in essential industries as subsets of these broader essential unauthorized immigrant worker populations, again, depending on which occupations are deemed essential. So as you can tell, the definition of essential is one of the questions that would have to be worked out in such a legalization. It, it's been somewhat amorphous. On the highest end of this range, we have the definition provided by the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, which is an agency of DHS. This definition of essential encompasses critical infrastructure industries, including those that directly provide and maintain critical infrastructure, as well as those involved in associated supply chains, but it doesn't distinguish between workers who can and cannot work from home. Then in the middle, which is definition two here, we have an estimate of frontline workers, which narrows the CISA defined essential occupations to include only those that do not allow most employees to work from home, thereby focusing on workers in critical industries who have also faced increased risk of exposure to the virus. In this scenario, 4.7 million unauthorized immigrants, including 268,000 DACA holders, are considered frontline workers. And in this scenario and the CISA-defined scenario, a higher share of the total unauthorized immigrant labor force than of the total US labor force actually works in the jobs considered essential. And then finally, at the lowest end of this range, definition one, we've created a definition that focuses only on industries directly related to combating the public health crisis and related to providing the US population with basic necessities. So that's industries like food, healthcare, scientific research, and delivery services. We've seen other countries do even narrower essential worker legalizations, such as Canada, which made eligible for permanent residents an estimated 1,000 asylum seekers who worked in hospitals or nursing homes in spring 2020. So there's clearly a lot of room for debate in this space, and any of our three definitions and others that aren't here might uh, might be argued to constitute essential workers. Another important subgroup of the unauthorized immigrant population comprises 1.4 million unauthorized immigrants who are the spouses of US citizens or permanent residents and who could be eligible for permanent residence through family sponsorship if not for what's called the unlawful presence bars. So these bars, also known as the three and 10 year bars, largely prevent immigrants who have been in the country illegally for at least six months from getting legal permanent residence, even if they're otherwise eligible. This is because with some exceptions, they must leave the country to apply for a green card at a US consulate abroad. But if they leave the country, these bars to re-entering the US for either three or 10 years are triggered. So most people choose not to try. Aside from creating a new legalization program, either a broad one or one that focuses on specific subsets of the unauthorized immigrant population. Another op option is to update or revise existing laws. One of the laws that could be updated is known as registry. It allows non-citizens without immigration status to adjust to permanent residence if they entered the country before a certain date, have since resided in the US and have demonstrated good moral character. This provision was first established in 1929, and the entry cutoff date, known as the registry date, has since been updated four times. But the most recent update sent, set the registry date to January 1st, 1972, and that was back in 1986. So it has little impact nowadays. Registry is a simple, streamlined way of conducting legalization with very straightforward criteria. It essentially acts as a statute of limitations with the idea being that at a certain point, no further public interest is served by pursuing long ago violations like illegal entry. Historically, the registry date has been set at between eight and 18 years prior to the date of updating the provision. Um, if that trend were followed using our 2018 estimates of the unauthorized immigrant population, we estimate that between 2.8 and 8 million people could be legalized if the registry date were to be updated to a date between eight and 18 years in the past. 
Another option is instead of updating the registry date once, to add a provision requiring that the registry date be reviewed and an update be considered every several years, every five years, say, so as not to let it get outdated again. And finally, although legislation is much preferable to executive action as it provides much more durable protections and is less vulnerable to court challenges, in the absence of legislation, the executive branch could provide some protections. These options include the Secretary of Homeland Security granting deferred action, potentially making use of parole in place, or designating nationals of certain countries for TPS, while the president could grant deferred enforced departure to classes of non-citizens. Most of these actions are typically done via policy guidance or memoranda, but could also be done via regulation to make them slightly more durable. And so to conclude, I think the important takeaways here are that there are particularly notable subgroups within the broader unauthorized immigrant population that have been in the country for extended periods of time, have contributed in key ways to the health and economy of the country, and or have deep ties to US citizens. And there are many ways to craft legalization programs that would benefit both them and the country at large. And with that, I will turn it back to Doris. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Jessica. I am going, before I go to Carrie, who will come next, I just wanna say that these slides, which we know are a lot to take in and are busy to see on the screen, will be available on our website uh, and uh, with the streaming of this event, uh, I believe as of tomorrow. So you will have something to refer to. They are of course all in the report, but using them as slides is a handier thumbnail. We do recognize that. So now, Carrie, these are the populations. We know what some of the options are. You've worked on the Democratic side on this issue for uh, through a number of iterations. Tell us what you see happening at the present time. Tell us what you see Democrats perhaps trying to do uh, in response to this presidential proposal. Great, thank you so much for that presentation. I think these uh, statistics and numbers will be extremely helpful as we push forward uh, for immigration reform. Thank you so much to Doris and to MPI for hosting this and for having me. So I'll talk a little bit about the Democrats strategy and the immigrant rights movement strategy for reform this year. Now that the Democrats have taken control of the Senate chamber, it's opened up a new set of opportunities for immigration reform. As Doris mentioned, Biden has recently laid out his vision for immigration reform, which includes a very strong framework. It includes a pathway to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented workers. It addresses root causes. It reunites families. It protects workers, reforms our asylum and refugee system and immigration system, promotes integration, and includes sensible border management and reforms to border patrol. We anticipate this bill will be introduced soon in the House and Senate by Senator Menendez and by Representative Linda Sanchez. We still need 10 Republicans to support legislation in most instances. It's unclear how cooperative Republicans will be with Biden's agenda. Often when one party controls all levers of government, the other party may become obstructionist. But the hope is that senators who've expressed interest in immigration reform will come forward, including Graham, Collins, Murkowski, Rounds, Rubio, Tillis, and others. Given the political temperature in the country, we're not sure whether these senators will support the DREAM Acts or broader immigration reform. Of course, several important leaders in the Republican Party are no longer here to guide us, including Senator John McCain, who led the 2013 effort. So given these big challenges, the immigrant rights movement will look at every option for moving forward. We no longer believe that an all or nothing comprehensive immigration reform approach is the way to go. We'll take any win that moves the country's immigration system forward by providing a path to citizenship without moving our system backward. The We Are Home campaign is composed of 100 groups and it launched last week. And we believe that any step forward that includes a path to citizenship or relief for families without harmful enforcement is very important progress. There are three strategies that I hope and expect Democrats will pursue. The first strategy is passing DREAM TPS and farm worker protections through regular order. There are seven major bills that will be introduced very soon related to immigration reform. 
As I mentioned this week, we're hoping that Senators Graham and Durbin will introduce the DREAM Act, which we anticipate will be the same version as last Congress. We also anticipate the Dream and Promise Act and the Farm Workforce Modernization Act will inter be introduced uh, shortly in the House in the next few weeks. We're hopeful that the Democrats will move these bills forward as quickly as possible to the House and Senate floor for a vote, since they have bipartisan support and the House bills already moved through committee last Congress. The biggest political consideration is whether we can get support for Senate Republicans this will be an opportunity for Republicans to come forward, vote for the DREAM Act, which has been before Congress for 20 years. At this point, many DREAMers have been here for decades, are having children, they own homes, and they work here as our colleagues. It's time for Republicans to finally step forward and pass the DREAM Act. We're hopeful that we'll be able to agree to support a path to citizenship for farm workers and individuals with TPS as well. And we will need 60 votes for this package. We hope the debate will take place in March. The second strategy is to attach bills to the second COVID reconciliation package, which is possible later this spring. Because, Democrat, because Democrats control both the House and Senate, they can use reconciliation to move large pieces of legislation. The Senate today is voting on amendments related to the first COVID relief package. And as you may know, reconciliation is a legislative process that can expedite passage of budgetary legislation. It's been used for major reforms such as healthcare reform and tax reform. Democrats will be able to pass reconciliation bills for the 2021, 2022, and 2023 budgets. And these bills only require 50 votes in the Senate for passage. So Democrats must be united to pass the bills through the Senate. To begin this process, we have a budget resolution, which actually the Senate is working on today with regard to the first package. The Senate has to include uh, budgetary items and the spending must not be insignificant from a budgetary standpoint. Given that legalization involves significant revenues and losses, I believe it's likely to be ruled by the Senate parliamentarians to be eligible for inclusion in a reconciliation bill. I'm particularly focused on the inclusion of essential workers in the next COVID reconciliation package. Uh, as they mentioned with the very, very helpful charts about the numbers of immigrants serving as essential workers, there are millions of essential workers on the front lines of this pandemic. The HEROES Act from last year included protections for these workers from deportation, and a path to citizenship could be included in this second package. We anticipate soon in the House and Senate that there will be standalone legislation providing a path to citizenship for essential workers. And we hope that DREAMers and individuals with TPS should also be included in this reconciliation package. Our third strategy is, of course, our very strong support for the Biden bill. It really gives us an opportunity to message strongly in favor of registering all undocumented immigrants and providing a path to citizenship as our primary goal. A down payment on this vision would be the passage of dream and promise for immigrant youth, individuals with TPS, and also essential workers. And as you can see from this multi-pronged strategy, the immigrant rights movement, and I believe the Democrats will leave no stone unturned in seeking a path to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented in the US. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Stuart, we're gonna to turn to you in just a moment, but I'm going to right now intercede with one point that's coming, in across, uh, coming through on the uh, questions. And that is a question that is asking about MPI's use of the terminology unauthorized immigrants instead of undocumented immigrants. We use the term unauthorized immigrants because it is the official census term and we do our work off of census data. Our methodologies, which are pretty much unique to MPI, all work with the US census information. And so we also use their terminology. So I hope that answers that question. Uh, Stuart, let's turn to you. Uh, Carrie has said that something that we all know, but just to put a point on it, because it's the difficult point, uh, progress needs 10 Republicans in the Senate. And so um, you work on these issues, past, present, and future. Uh, what do you think about the possibility of that? Uh, Carrie's also made the point that any win is a good thing. And so talk to us about um, whether any wins are possible from the standpoint of what you're seeing. 
uh, and um, you know perhaps something about some of the strategies that uh, the uh, that Carrie has described. Sure, and uh, thanks for having me. Y'all do great uh, research and great events. It's a pleasure to be back with you again. Um, I'm speaking on my. Um, I'm going to give you a sense of what I think is going to happen from the Republicans' vantage point. Uh, my personal view is we should move forward on as many paths to legalization as possible as part of comprehensive uh, immigration reform, um, which I've worked on all the way back to my time on the Hill and then in the Bush administration at the first uh, part of Homeland Security. But I want to give you maybe more of a reality check as to what I think is going on with uh, the senators in particular, uh, based on you know, the dynamics around immigration. Um, we do need a legislative outcome to kind of reflect what's happened to our immigration system since 9-11 and all the enforcement enhancements that have been made over the last two decades. It is a little unfortunate that the middle ground on immigration, which I thought was reasonably strong um, post 9-11 and for a decade has somewhat collapsed. You had Trump's team really looking for every possible way to make illegal presence uh, miserable, for lack of a better word. And you've got the left moving um, away from traditional parts of comprehensive uh, reform around border security and employer enforcement. Um, you know, I think some folks tend to look at where we are in 2021 is kind of a continuation of debates from 2001 or, or 2007 or 2013, but the Republican world has changed. Um, there is much less deference now to what the Chamber of Commerce wants. Um, there is much less interest in what mainstream media says. And there's a lot more interest in what uh, a primary challenges look like, or if you want to run for, for a future higher office, what uh, supporting immigration form will mean for that. Um, just as one example, uh, there were 14 Republicans, I believe, who voted for the 2013 comprehensive bill. Only five of them are left in the Senate now, um, and some of them are not going to vote for it again if it were to come back up. Um, so you mentioned Senator Graham is, is still in the Senate. Senator Murkowski, Senator Collins are probably, um, probably pretty supportive of moving forward, but Rubio has definitely backtracked, and we don't know where Senator Hogan is going to be, and the rest have either retired or passed away. Um, so it is a tough list. Uh, to move to find progress on. I would say that there's not a whole lot of upside for Republicans for a broad legalization, but many members will look at, at a bill um, around Dreamers as an attractive backup play. I can see getting 10 Republicans for that. Um, the whole angst around the last four years around DACA and uh, Trump's attempt to get rid of it and the litigation was really difficult for a lot of Republicans who do believe that Dreamers should be allowed to stay. Um, and always wanted them to stay as part of a broader um, package. Um, so I do think that that could pass. The TPS angle on there is, has a little less support, but probably is not a deal breaker for many folks. But once you get past that, it is going to be tricky to find votes on the Republican side. Um, I'd say putting aside morality or economic considerations for a second, many members look at this from a purely political standpoint and adding large number of voters who would become legalized and then move along to a path to citizenship in a relatively short period of time um, that are going to break, you know, 70-30 or 60-40 or 80-20 against them uh, down the line is a tough political vote. Uh, there would be, of course, some political benefit for uh, Republicans to support a bill among moderate suburban voters who would like to see a, you know, inclusive approach or a, you know, more moderate approach on immigration, especially after the last four years but it still could be a net vote loss. And so the question is, you know, kind of balancing political concerns versus other interests around morality or around economics. Um, I think many Republicans expect that, that a, and we'll put, we can come back to reconciliation, which I think is an interesting play as to what is allowed on there and what may not be allowed. I think most Republicans expect that a broad immigration bill is where um, the filibuster is going to die. That is going to be the issue at some point in 2021 where Democrats can't, get what they want, the pressure on Manchin and others to abandon the filibuster will be so intense that that's where that fight will finally come up to bear. And that will be the kind of the end of the filibuster passing a broad immigration bill. Um, last thing I'd say, I think it's pretty strategic that the broad Biden bill that they introduced is pretty, um, pretty bold. There's not a whole lot of enforcement. It would allow legalization for individuals who arrived as recently as Christmas but I think it does strategically set up a left flank that would allow them to tack to the middle and still pass something that would be quite bold uh, and very advantageous to the many communities who are looking for relief. So with that, maybe I'll turn it open for Q&A. And again, thanks for the invitation. 
Okay, well, thank you very much, Stuart. Um, uh, we're gonna go into the Q&A and um, let me just simply remind you that uh, we have a number of questions already, so I will start scrolling through them, but uh, I'll remind others that to participate in the Q&A, please uh, use the chat box or email to events at migrationpolicy.org. Also, you can tweet your questions to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Um, uh, let, uh, before I go to the questions here, let, let me just pick up, Carrie, on a point that um, Stuart made at the end, which is a very provocative point, and that is the filibuster. I mean, the filibuster is, you know, if there's anything that is equally controversial, it certainly is where the Senate would go on that. Do you see the possibility of what uh, Stuart has outlined, that the issue of filibuster and immigration could actually converge at a point where... Um, uh, where, where the filibuster might go over the issue of immigration legislation? Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting uh, thought. And I, I have to confess, it, I haven't really thought of immigration being the key to that, but certainly I think it's a really, really good point. It definitely certainly could be. I guess I'm hopeful that we'll be able to move forward this year. And I believe that Biden wants to go through regular order. And I think, you know, reconciliation is also a possibility this year, but I think he's right, you know, come next year, if neither of these things have succeeded, then certainly, you know, filibuster reform is really critical, I think for immigration and other progressive priorities, and it'd be great to eliminate it and go ahead and pass, you know, legislation that's broadly supported by the American people. Uh, Carrie, let me stick with you then on a more specific point. And that is a question about undocumented parents of American children with disabilities. How has that come up in the discussion, if at all? Yeah, I mean, certainly there's a lot of effort to make sure that the children of um, undocumented immigrants, especially so many US citizens who are here and were born here to undocumented families that they receive the kinds of support they need. You know, obviously the bill covers everyone, including folks with disabilities, but we've also been really involved in trying to make sure that this COVID relief package that's in the Senate right now includes support for these families. You know, all U.S. citizen children should be able to receive stimulus checks, for example. And so it's definitely part of our thinking to make sure U.S. citizen kids are protected. Okay. Um... Uh, one, there's a very straightforward question here about the pathway to citizen, uh, Biden's proposal and whether there is actually a, a bill available. Uh, the, the, there is a White House description and there is a pretty detailed description, uh, but have you seen any bill language, Carrie? Well, I was uh, helping out a bit with the transition, so I've seen bits and pieces, but I think the whole bill will be in. Uh, unveiled very soon in the next week or two by Senator Menendez and by Representative Sanchez. So we don't have publicly available bill text. So Stuart, uh, on the, you know, even without seeing a bill, we do know enough from the overall outline of it uh, that one thing that is different this time around that hasn't been the case in the past is that there is not a direct trade-off in this bill between enforcement and legalization. And that, of course, has been such a pattern in the past. This bill basically does assume, and you said yourself in your remarks, that such an investment has been made in enforcement, that it really is a different reality on the ground than would have been the case even in 2013 and certainly in the early 2000s. But, you know, that has been a very, very, uh, um, muscular issue, particularly in the last four years, the wall, et cetera, border security. How do you see that issue playing for Republicans, this basic idea that the enforcement resources and investments that have been made are sufficient at this point to begin to disaggregate legalization and other legal immigration changes from enforcement increases? I have to go up mute here to do this, of course. Um, so I think it, it, there's kind of two areas of enforcement that'll be of interest here. One are the symb symbolic measures and one are the more substantive measures. So for some, you know, building more wall, those types of things is going to be an ask. They're probably not going to get it. 
um, but it will be something that people will talk about. The more substantive thing are the interior enforcement issues that, you know, for 20 years we've been talking about, let's legalize those who are here, but let's build a system that works better going forward. And that included employment verification and some mechanism to detain and remove people who arrive after the legalization. And so that, you know, in parlance now means ICE, which has become, you know, agency non grata. And so the question will be, are those, are, are we gonna have interior enforcement post legalization that is credible or not? I think Republicans, if they're gonna get 10 votes, that's gonna have to be part of the equation. It's always been part of the equation. If they're gonna move something without enhanced interior enforcement at the workplace and for you know criminal aliens and stuff, that is gonna be a non-starter for Republicans. And so they'd have to move it with democratic votes only. And my expect that even some of the Democrats would want those, those enforcement mechanisms to be included in a bill, even if it was being passed just with Democratic votes. It wouldn't obviously be as broad or as sweeping as Republicans would want, but it'd have to be something. But at this, I'm, I'm differentiating that from like Southern border, you know, right. enforcement along the Southern border. I'm talking more kind of garden variety, day-to-day -day enforcement of our laws across the country. Right. But how about the other part of the really lessons of the of the 1986 law, and that is that you have to provide for future flow. You have to recognize that even if you are able to do the clean the slate idea and, um, <clears throat> uh, uh, and bring people into legal status, there is a need for immigration going forward. And unless there are better, broader pathways for legal immigration, no matter how much enforcement you do, you're not really having an alignment between your immigration system and the economy. Yeah, I say real fast. I mean, I think that also is an area where people who are serious students of immigration believe that's a necessary component to toggle the labor market appropriately. But that issue has also kind of collapsed. The centrist position has, evolved, has been erased. You've got populist Republicans um, worried about impacts on labor. You've got union-focused Democrats. So I Again, I would hope that would be part of the package, but it doesn't appear to have nearly as much support as it did, um, you know, a decade ago uh, when we really last thought about this. Right. Okay. So, um, uh, Carrie, do you want to make any comment on, on that, or should I go on to another question? Yeah, I actually think that um, future flow is more important in many ways to the Republicans that were focused on than border. You know, I know during the 2013 debate. Everyone sort of thought, oh, legalization will be the complicated topic, but actually it definitely wasn't. It was future flow. Um, that's what Graham really cares about. That's what a number of these Republicans care about. And, you know, Democrats are happy to, I think, to sit down at the table and talk to them about future flow, but um, they have to be at the table and they have to be obviously willing to, you know, have a reasonable conversation about immigration. I don't think it's reasonable to beef up any more enforcement. I mean, we've we've had billions and billions of dollars of enforcement over the years. Trump really, I mean, it's been four years of nonstop enforcement. So I don't really think that's the key to this, but I do definitely think future flow could come into the conversation. Okay, um, I'm gonna ask a question here that really applies to both of you um, uh, in terms of how influential it would be. The question is, uh, what role should state and local bodies play to advance the, the goal of legalization? Um, uh, even though legalization obviously is something that has to be done at the federal level by the Congress, can state and local officials be more than mere advocates? Go ahead, Carrie, why don't you start? And then Stuart, I, I'd love to hear from you too. Yes, definitely. I mean, there's a number of state and local uh, government officials who are really involved and interested in promoting policies like integration and workforce development, um, English language learning. I mean, there's so much that can be done, I think, at the state and local level to really promote citizenship. Um, and really, that's what the American people want, right? They want folks who want to become citizens and pay taxes. And really that is our undocumented population. They do want to be Americans. And I think there's a lot to do at the state and local level. I, I kind of assume that the, you know, the issues around state enforcement you know, have, are gonna fade away a little bit. I think they've become so toxic um, that you know, uh, that is not gonna be something that localities are gonna wanna do because of their own political uh, needs on the ground, especially larger cities. You know, I'm hopeful that there can be at least enough cooperation so that criminal aliens, and there's always 
going to be a slice of, of individuals of any any makeup that you know commit bad acts um, can be appropriately detained. Um, but that requires you know decent cooperation between you know local law enforcement and, and the feds. But I don't expect that um, that that is going to is going to be, go beyond that. Just the politics don't align for that anymore. Uh, Jessica, I have a question here about registry. So, uh, it, you know, it references that we talked about registry in the paper and uh, that it's a simple and straightforward path. Uh, what are your thoughts on the possibility of restoring pre-1996 cancellation of removal eligibility requirements and expanding the cancellation authority to USIS to be able to handle it. And Carrie, you or Ruth Stewart, you might want to chime in as well. But Jessica, do you want to start us on that? Sure. So this is one of the other possibilities that we actually address in the report um, as an option for how to revise existing laws that are on the books to remove some obstacles to legalization. Um, so cancellation of removal is <clears throat> basically a process by which unauthorized immigrants uh, who have been in the country for at least 10 years, um, who lack certain criminal convictions and have demonstrated good moral character, and can also show that their deportation would cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to a permanent resident or US citizen family member. Uh, it's a process by which they can essentially get green cards through uh, immigration court proceedings. Um, and the 1996 law that Doris mentioned uh, raised that hardship standard that people have to prove. It also limited the number of grants of cancellation of removal that can be approved every year. Um, so yeah, definitely, um, you know, setting, setting the hardship standard uh, at a more uh, feasible standard to meet, um, removing that cap on grants of cancellation of removal every year, um, and also allowing for a way for people to request cancellation of removal without uh, going through the U.S. immigration court, um, which uh, adds to the U.S. the court backlog um, and causes people who wouldn't otherwise be placed in removal proceedings to be placed in removal proceedings. Those would all be good options. Uh, to make cancellation of removal a more um, an option that's more available to people who might be eligible. Carrie, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot to be done administratively to allow people to apply for cancellation um, without having to sort of volunteer themselves for deportation proceedings. But also, I would just say, you know, that there's other um, mechanisms as well that you all studied in this report. You know, the three and 10 year bars, I think are really ripe for reform. I think there's a lot of agreement. There's bipartisan support. That's something I definitely could be, could be added to a package. And also even 245i has come up recently as well. I'm sure Doris is very familiar um, from 20 years ago, but you know, similar population of people who have been here a long time or who have employment or family relationships and letting them either pay a fine or um, have the, the bars waived would be really helpful and I think could potentially be included. Stuart, do you see Republicans being open in any way, assuming that there is a small group that would be interested? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure there's some like magic asterisk that can kind of fix this complicated issue, but it is an interesting concept. And I Again, I think you could find Republicans willing to um, say, you know, if you've been here for 30 years and you're, you know, by definition, you're, you know, 50 years old or higher. Yes, we could allow you. I think the dilemma is going to be somewhere between 30 years and three weeks ago is what's. <laughs> and so the question is, where would you write that definition? If it's going to be something that's fairly recent, I think people are going to have, it's going to be all this attractive. It was something clearly meant to go after, you know, folks have been here since the Reagan administration. That would be a, easier pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I think that the thing I just mentioned, the idea that like you could kind of, you know, have a something sneaky and you know, people wouldn't notice. I mean, there's a whole, unfortunately from my perspective, but a whole, you know, uh, cast of characters on the right that monitor this stuff very carefully. Many of them were in charge the last four years. Um, it will be on the news immediately as to what the plan is and what, what effects it would have. So there's no way to kind of, if you're going to legalize people, you're going to have to do it 
uh, up front and explain it and, and make the case for it. You're not gonna be able to just kind of sneak it through. Yeah, no, and that's an interesting point because I do remember years ago when we did do legislation, there always were, there was always this category of what was called housekeeping. So it was just sort of technical details and technical details, of course, could make a big, big difference, but that just kind of got dealt with on the side. That's not possible anymore. Every, uh, every single thing is now uh, carefully scrutinized. Well, so uh, Carrie, I wanna ask you about a question we have that has to do with people who have committed crimes. Uh, in, I know we're not at that point yet in, the details of legislation, but that's always an issue. Uh, people who have had some uh, uh, crimes, and let's say crimes beyond having violated uh, illegal entry. How do you how do you see that being treated in the legalization bill? I mean, current law already precludes uh, people who have uh, serious criminal convictions from immigrating to the U.S., and so. Any uh, adjustment of status or legalization program is going to include, you know, at least those current law inadmissibility standards. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's certainly something that comes up. I think it's unfortunate that it's so politicized, and I think it would be really helpful if, when we do do reform, if we have more discretion in the law, so that you know, judges and immigration officers can really look at the whole circumstances, you know, is this an old conviction? Was it really a serious conviction? Is it even a conviction? Um, that would be really helpful to have more discretion and waivers available. So uh, there's also the matter then when you describe that of just the adjudications that would be involved and the <clears throat> workload that a legalization program would represent for the Department of Homeland Security, presumably USCIS. But um, uh, has there been any discussion about, you know, if, if a broader program were enacted about aspects of it, including the DHS issues and the your issues that have to do with actually handling this kind of a workload? Yeah, that's a good question. It came up a lot in 2013 as to just making sure that they had the resources, because obviously USCIS has really had some serious issues. I mean, the last administration kind of drove it into the ground for a few months there where it was almost uh, going defunct for a few months. But um, I think under new leadership, you know, we're excited about Secretary Mayorkas, and I think there'll be ways to really make sure the agency's ready for this. But certainly it does require a lot of planning and now, I remember in 2013, there was conversations about bringing on whole new service centers. Um, so yeah, it's it's certainly something to put more thought into, I think. Yeah, I was gonna say the, um, I think you know, having uh, Secretary Mayorkas, who I was proud to support and I think will do a good job and his immigration expertise will be really needed. You know, as we move through this, it will be important because it is gonna be tricky to figure out, um, you know, how you enroll people, make sure that there's no fraud, make sure that they, you know, they're the right people, uh, vet them, those types of things. I, in 2013, basically the bill would have thrown it to DHS to kind of figure it out. In 2007, there was a lot more debate about exactly what criminal behavior would be disqualifying. And I remember telling one of the supporters, look, you're really, you're fighting to, you know, for the five-time DUI guy and you're jeopardizing all the people that, you know, have live clean, cleaner records and then that falling apart and part of that issue. And so I would urge people to, you know, have reasonable rules about criminal behavior um, and not kind of, um, you know, try to protect people who have committed many bad acts at the expense of folks who have, you know, been very productive and we really want to make sure can stay and become legalized. Well, uh, the related question, Jessica, that I think you might be able to take that has to do with another category of people and those are the people waiting for asylum hearings um, and in the court backlogs. So, how, how do you see, Jessica, how do you, in terms of the groups that we disaggregated and looked at, how do you see those people that are waiting in asylum backlog queues, how would they be treated? Sure. So, and actually in uh, another recent MPI report, we looked at uh, the, the number of those people. We found that over 700,000 uh, people with pending asylum applications have work authorization. So they're uh, asylum applications have been pending for longer than six months. Um, so, and we know that there's a lengthy 
a backlog in the asylum system that asylum cases often take several years um, to adjudicate. So I think that there definitely would be overlap uh, in the categories that we've laid out here and uh, with asylum seekers that could be categories like essential workers, that could be categories such as being married to a U.S. citizen or permanent resident. Um, it could be a category um, like being in the U.S. for an extended period of time. Um, so I think that a lot of these options for legalization uh, would um, be available uh, to asylum seekers and might even be a better option for some of them. Um, asylum can be very difficult uh, to obtain and is ultimately a discretionary status. And we know that uh, it's become much more difficult over the past four years. So if there were a legalization option uh, for asylum seekers, uh, that, that asylum seekers would qualify for, um, that, that could be an option that many of them would favor. Carrie, I'm gonna ask you about another issue that's uh, actually started to be a little bit in the discussion and we have it on the uh, uh, Q&A board here, which is CBO scoring. Explain what the CBO scoring dimension of legalization is and what, uh, how that, how, how that, how a legalization program is designed, how, how does that affect the CBO scoring? What is the, the uh, relevance of CBO scoring? Yeah, it's a huge factor for sure, even a bigger factor in reconciliation than it is in regular order. Um, but, you know, in the 2013 bill, there were huge costs involved, a lot of border security costs, and much of that was paid for by increases in fees. I mean, sometimes there are actually win-win solutions where people actually want to pay for premium processing or they want to pay for special services. And so there can be ways to raise fees in a way that the customer gets more, but also it's able to pay for some of these big programs that are typically included in a big bill. Um, and reconciliation, it's a really, really huge issue because there cannot be any costs in the years, the out years, they call them, the years from 10 to 20 after you pass a bill. And so we literally will have to pay for every single cost, including, you know, medical care issues, health care, other benefits that people get after they become citizens uh, or lawful permanent residents. So, yeah, it certainly is a huge issue. Stuart, you want to add anything to that? I just, I guess I say, I remember the 2013 bill when, when the, when CBO scored the bill, I think people were surprised at how much money was raised by the fees and fines that people were going to be required to pay both to become legalized and also some of the worker programs, um, temporary programs. And that was used in part to pay for the cost of the bill. Now in a reconciliation bill or some other bill in an era where we're spending trillions of dollars, it seems like every two weeks on COVID that those numbers may get dwarfed in that environment, but in a regular environment, they would really matter um, in terms of kind of, you know, help, helping pay for the things I mentioned. Now, again, some of it depends on where you're gonna invest the money. Is it gonna to go to other programs? Or is it gonna to go to enforcement? Um, you know, that matters, but it, it would raise quite a bit of money if they had the fees and fines similar to the last time. Okay, uh, we're nearing the end of our time. I'm gonna ask one final question. And uh, that is a question about DACA back to the, you know, we'll take any win that we can idea that we started with. Uh, DACA is still in the courts and it is, you know, any day a judgment could come that the legal basis for DACA uh, might be, um, um, you know, declared in, in, inappropriate. If were something like that to happen, Carrie, I guess you'd be the best answer. Would that would that encourage legislation on DACA to move more quickly or is that an independent variable? Yeah, I definitely think it will encourage uh, the legislators to move more quickly. And we are anticipating a decision any day now. Unfortunately, you know, there's a judge in Texas who's uh, quite anti uh, our agenda. <laughs> and so, you know, we're waiting for his decision very soon as to, you know, what what he'll say about DACA, but we are concerned. And, you know, I do think that legislators will pay a lot of attention to that and that it could cause them to move much more quickly. Yeah, I have to, I'd agree with that. I mean, one of the dilemmas we had the last few years of trying to get a dreamer bill passed was there was 
there was attempts to get rid of the program, but they were stuck in court and there was never kind of the um, come to Jesus moment when it looked like actually the program was going to be defunct. Um, I assume the judge, even if he were to rule it unconstitutional or illegal, would would stay his ruling and not and allow it to be appealed. But I do think it would. I think a, a dreamer bill could pass the Senate uh, if that's all it was. And especially if there was a court case putting the program in jeopardy, there's there's easily 10 Republicans to stop deportations of dreamers. There's probably 20. Um, it's just a question of how the court process plays out. Many very good questions. And I'm sorry we haven't been able to get through through them, but we did cover a lot of them and we covered a lot of ground here. So I want to thank our our guests in particular, uh, Jessica for presenting, Carrie and uh, Stuart for being with us to give us a bird's eye view of what might be happening on the Hill. I um, um, wanna repeat that the audio of this session will be available on our MPI website tomorrow. And uh, you can also find the report on our website as well as the slides tomorrow. Um, the um, final word that I would say is that this particular piece of work is part of a broader initiative that we call uh, Rethinking U.S. Immigration Policy, Building a Responsive, Effective Immigration System. And there are other uh, pieces of work that are part of that initiative that you can also find on our website. So thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you to our guests. Thank you, audience. Uh, and we'll now close. <laughs>